Heavenly Father, as we have voiced our prayer in song, open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things out of your law. Things maybe that we didn't expect. Things that we didn't see before. But now with the Holy Spirit teaching us and turning on the light of illumination, our hearts see and we embrace your truth. Let this be a life-transforming moment for many hearts today as they see Christ. And it's in his matchless name we pray. All the people of God said, amen. That familiar phrase, no pain, no gain, was popularized in the 1980s by Jane Fonda and the wildly successful exercise videos that she sold during that time. But I thought the phrase came from the great hard-nosed football coach from the Green Bay Packers, Vince Lombardi. For years, I think I attributed the quote to him, but when I did some research, I found no documentation. I'm sure he said it, as every football coach has in every place. Indeed, it is a cliche, iconic, and well overused. But that sent me on a little bit of a search. Lombardi did say, to achieve success, whatever the job, we must pay a price. That's almost the same thing. But as I went back to look at the origin of this phrase, I found that Ben Franklin in 1734 in his Poor Richard's Almanac wrote, there are no gains without pains. To go back further, Robert Robert Herrick in his poem, Hesperides, this is 1650 now, wrote, if little the labor, little are gains, For man's fate is according to his pains. (laughs) And you can go all the way back, the coup de grace, to Sophocles, 5th century BC, who in his play, Electro, wrote, nothing truly succeeds without pain. Now what do we learn from all this? That plagiarism has been around for the ages. And everyone is borrowing from everyone. It is, a memori- it is a memorable phrase when you think about it, parson part of our English language. The modern medical society has come out and said it's a wrong motto for you to work and exercise until you hurt. That's apparently wrong. So we ask ourselves the question, is this even true? It's poetic, saying much with a few words, and I like that in poetry. Like a prize fighter, it has a one-two punch in this simple couplet, the repetition of the word no, uh, the beautiful rhyme with the words pains and gain. It's a cadence well-known in the English language, but is it true? Well, it does touch a universal need We want to grow, we want to gain, we desire progress. And it does show part of the underlying process. It's gonna hurt. (laughs) But still, I ask the question, is it true? 
And the clear answer comes from scripture. Yes, it is. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 11. Should have that on our screen, Hebrews 12, 11. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Now this is after he started out in the chapter talking about the pain of Jesus, who for the joy before him endured the cross, despising its shame, that he stood against the opposition of sinners against himself. Look at his example, lest you are beaten up and fainting and wanting to quit the Christian life. I dare not ask how many of you are ready to quit, raise your hand. <laughs> that would be too embarrassing, but I'm sure if we were honest, there, there would be hands that would be raised. Jesus stood against the opposition. But then he says in verse four that you also have a struggle against sin. And in your struggle against sin, you've not died like Jesus had. You haven't shed your blood yet. Some have, but many have not. And what we need to understand is that behind the struggles and trials that we face is a loving father who has in mind for us progress godliness, and holiness. So if we ask the question, what does pain produce? Look at verse 11. It produces a harvest of righteousness and peace. Probably the same, uh, peace is probably the adjective, peaceable righteousness, but whether you divide them or join them, these are wonderful things to experience. Rightness before God and the ability to walk rightly with God. Righteousness, objective and subjective. And peace with God, and peace with ourselves and those around us. Again, wonderful blessings. It's a rich, glorious harvest. Our pain is not pointless. God has a purpose. If the branch could speak to the husbandman, I'm sure it would cry out, I don't like the shearing process. I don't like the pruning process. But the gardener would say, I only desire what? More fruit. Yeah, it hurts, but in the end, this is better for you. And it's better for me. And so God has the pruning process in our life that is at the moment, not pleasant, but painful. Remember this, the devil wants to destroy you in your trials and God wants to perfect you, to build you up, and to produce a harvest. We read in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory or a, an eternal glory that far outweighs the trial. But we often don't have that eternal perspective. Our perspective is so earthbound that anything that troubles us, we try to avoid. And I'm right there with you. But we've got to get back to the viewpoint that God is in control. 
And what he's doing in our lives is for our eternal good and his eternal glory. Ah, but there's a key verse, a key word in verse 11 that you cannot miss. And it is the word trained. Did you see that? So that the process that I'm going through, though not pleasant right now, but painful, later on it produces this wonderful harvest of peaceable righteousness if, if I'm trained by it. And so what the writer of Hebrews is going to do in the rest of the chapter, or at least in the immediate uh, section, is to talk about what if you are trained by your trials? What would it look like? And then he goes to the other, what if you are not trained by your trials? What would that look like? Being trained means you're submitting to the trial because it comes from a loving heavenly father and you're looking for what he's desiring to produce instead of what you selfishly desire. To be trained means that you're willing to put up with the pain because of the production. So what if you were trained by your trials? What would it look like? What would it look like? Verse 12. You would seek to be strong Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and your weak knees. He's not talking physically, by the way, although many of us would say, boy, that's exactly how I feel. Make level paths for your feet, quotation from Proverbs 4, so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. This is the fact that the people he's writing to are showing signs of giving up. And that's why the example of Jesus was given in the early part of the chapter. He didn't give up. He endured. And we shouldn't give up either. But you're showing signs of giving up. A faltering. It appears that the author, is, who, who knew the Hebrew scriptures is extremely well, is quoting from Isaiah 35. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that it give way. Say to those fearful hearts, be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come. There's a time for us to be strong, right? I was tempted to use the phrase man up, <laughs> but in our culture, would you not be criticized for that? So let me go to the scriptures where Paul says to the Corinthians, play the part of a man. That's exactly what he says. Now that's not putting down women at all. It's simply saying that the men were fighting the battles and they're the ones who need to man up as it were and not coward back in the midst of a battle. Or to put it in a more general sense as Christians, we often cower in the midst of our trials and we don't, we don't be, we're not strong in faith. And therefore, we're weak need, trembling in heart, feeble in arms. Job says something very similar in chapter 4 about being feeble and faltering. It's interesting that the word strength or strengthen comes from our English word, or our English word comes from the Greek word orthopedic. 
It's the idea of being upright. And so we're told that this standing strong, obviously in the scriptures, is the work of God's grace. But we are told to do it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. The level paths literally means a straight path. The lame probably refers to those who are discouraged and the disabled, those who have turned aside. The Revised Standard Version uses the word dislocated. And this is a graphic portrayal of the condition of that church and I think a graphic portrayal of the modern church today. Are we not feeble in arm, weak in need, backward in heart? Because we have not by faith embraced the God who's in control of our situation. So that's the first thing he says in verse 12 and 13. You need to seek to be strong. Secondly, what does it look like if we're trained by our trials? Well, we will make every effort to live in peace with everyone. That's verse 14. You will pursue peace. You will be a peacemaker among the people of God. I had the opportunity to spend some time with pastors in the last couple weeks and to hear their stories of the battles that they are facing. And often the battles for a pastor are not those big battles of a fight, you know, on the, on the front to win people to Christ and to stand up against apostasy, but it, it's the little fires that happen in the congregation that you spend your time and energy trying to put out. Because people don't seek peace. They seek prominence. <laughs> they don't seek a resolution in a difficulty. They seek to win. And yet we are to seek peace with everyone. Listen to the scriptures. Psalm 34. Turn away from evil. Seek peace and pursue it. Paul picks it up in Romans chapter 12. If it's possible, as much as it depends on you, live in peace with everyone. Romans 14, similar language. Make every effort to do what leads to peace. In Ephesians 4, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Peace is important because we are children of the Prince of Peace. And when we lack it, or we do not demonstrate it, we're declaring that Christ is not Lord. At least at that moment. We're not following him as Lord. Peace is an important thing. Do you realize Jesus died to bring peace for you and God, between you and God? That's how serious he is about it. Some of the devil's best work is evident in the divisions among us who are Bible believers over trivial things in the light of eternity. But we're still going to hold to our position. I'm getting tired of it. And what a, what a horrible thing it is for the world to look at the church and to say, and they often do, if that's what it is to be a Christian, I want no part of it. 
pursue peace. Many people have left the church because of friendly fire. They've been attacked by people more inside the church than they ever were outside. And they think that that's what Christianity is. But get this, pursuing peace is linked to pursuing purity of soul. That's the latter part of verse 14. We are to pursue holiness. That's what you will do. if, If you're trained by your trials, you will pursue holiness. And is that not what it's all about? Go back to verse 10. God is working these sufferings, these trials, this discipline in your life to make you holy. Now that kind of is an abstract term for many people. It's a synonym with godly. But I think the best definition is simply this, be like Jesus. That's what holiness is, to be like Jesus. God loves you so much that he has ordained that every believer will be just like Jesus. That's Romans chapter eight. God is committed to making you like his son. And the process (laughs) is painful. But get on agenda with God. Get on track with his goal. And pursue holiness. And get this, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Referring to the second coming of Christ. Second coming of Christ is a purifying hope. 1 John chapter 3, we know that when we see him, we'll be like him, for we'll see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself. Jesus is coming, and I will meet him. And I want to stand before him washed in his blood and covered with his righteousness. Holiness is both objective. We're given holiness when we trust Christ as Savior, but it is also practical and subjective. We must pursue it. We must discipline ourselves to be godly. And that takes work. And you're not saved by disciplining yourself to be holy, but those who are saved discipline themselves to be holy. And I don't know where the line is to be drawn. I just know this, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. I don't have holiness in me. It's all of Jesus. But he's created me to be holy, so I better seek it. And that's what will happen in the lives of those who are trained by their trials. Isn't it interesting in the Beatitudes that these two are brought together, this idea of peace and holiness? Blessed are the pure in heart, What's the rest of it? For they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called the sons of God. But what if you aren't trained by your trials? What does that look like? Greek scholar Westcott says that there are three successive clauses that start the same way with this idea, see to it. They're warning clauses. Verse 15. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. You see, there is the danger of missing 
God's grace. He's speaking to a group of people who profess Christ, but now they're thinking about leaving Christ. And as it says in chapter six, if they leave Christ, they simply declare that they were never in Christ. Beware that you don't fall short of God's amazing grace. Because God's amazing grace makes you a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Christ. And if there isn't some empirical evidence that your life has been radically changed by your faith in him, how think you saved? There's a danger of miss, I thought I was a believer. I prayed a prayer once, forgot about it, and then lived any way I wanted to, but I thought that's all I had to do to get in. God's children are radically changed. Don't miss the grace of God. By the way, this is a reoccurring theme. You see it in chapter two, chapter three, four, six, ten, several times. Chapter four, verse one, therefore since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let's be careful that none of us be found to have fallen short. But thank God there is something called the throne of grace, chapter four, verse 16, and let us approach that throne with confidence so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. If God brings conviction on your soul that maybe, just maybe you're not a believer, flee to the throne of grace. And an honest prayer of Lord, I'm a sinner, save me. An honest prayer will bring salvation. And if anyone's in Christ, they're new creatures. We'll not debate the degrees, because no one can. God knows those who are his. I'm simply stating the principle that is clearly seen in all of scripture, and especially here. God's grace is so amazing, isn't it? He gives more grace when the burdens are greater. He sends more strength when the labors increase, and to added affliction, he adds his mercy to multiplied trials, his multiplied peace. And that's what we need today, don't we? Oh, don't miss the grace of God. There is no human need that outstrips his incredible grace. Where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. Whatever you've done, God's grace can conquer your sin and make you his child and give you a faith story like we heard shared with us by Ted Loudon today. But to miss God's grace is to miss God's heaven. Secondly, there's a danger of becoming bitter. So trials do this. Trials, if we don't respond properly, if we respond negatively, we miss the grace of God. And secondly, we become bitter. That's the danger of a trial without the proper biblical response. So that in our midst, there are people filled with bitterness. Oh, someone did something to me and I will never, ever forget. Ooh, that's a dangerous position. Because that's the position of a heart that is not responding properly to trials. You say, but you don't know what's happened to me. I I don't, but I do know what happened to Jesus and I do know what he tells us in his word. 
And I can weep with those who weep, and sometimes in my mind and heart, I don't know what to say to people who are going through trials far greater than mine, and yet I've seen those same people praise God in the midst of the storm. Isn't that something? Don't become bitter. That no bitter root grows in your heart. And from your heart, many are defiled. You know, if you were close to someone who had COVID back in the day, it's a little different now, but you had to quarantine. We all remember that, don't we? Because you were exposed. And we don't want you to get it because it's serious, number one, but number two, you'll pass it on to others. And in all our efforts to stop the virus, it was strong and probably has touched almost all of us. Bitterness does the same thing. What if we started quarantining those who are bitter? (laughs) You've got the virus of bitterness. Stay in your house house 14 days. Don't talk to anyone. (laughs) There's no way of stopping it except the grace of God. Because I can be so selfish. And when I don't get my way, I can become so bitter. And this thing called trial means I'm not getting my way. But I've got to see God's way in it. Don't react bitterly. Because you're hurting us too. I was watching a game this week in baseball and there was an outfielder for the Yankees who made an error, which wasn't so bad. That happens. But the error caused him to stand for a moment and sulk while two runs scored. And he was not out there the next inning for the manager of the Yankees, Aaron Boone, put him on the bench. I noticed he didn't play the next game either. He's a good guy. I think he's a pretty good player, but he just ignored what had taken place. And you have to get that kind of attitude out lest the spirit affects others. So there's the danger of missing God's grace. There is the danger of becoming bitter And here's the third one. If you don't respond properly to the trials around you, there is the danger of living sensually or being immoral or godless. And now we have an example, like Esau. Now we had an example of what it was to respond properly to trials. His name is Jesus. That's the first three verses of the chapter. But now here's an example of someone who didn't respond well to his trials. His name is Esau. Verse 16, see that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, he wanted it back. He wanted to inherit the blessing, but he was rejected. 
even though he sought the blessing with tears. Now some of the translations have it, uh, even though he repented, and you get the idea that, wow, sometimes your, your sin is so bad that honest repentance will not bring forgiveness. But what he was sorry for is that he lost his inheritance. And he was crying because he wasn't gonna get the money. And that's what made him so sad. And listen to these haunting words at the end of verse 17. He could not change what had been done. The word immoral is used here. It refers to people who are controlled by their senses. Not trained by God, but subject to their fleshly nature. Esau is the opposite of all the heroes of the faith in chapter 11 because by faith they went forward but because of lack of faith and holding the inheritance lightly, having such a poor view of it, trades off what was unseen for immediate gratification for what was seen, a meal. With tears he tried to undo it but he had abandoned faith and there was no turning around. This is not only a bad decision, this is a fatal decision to live by your senses. The older I get, I realize that the more I remember about the past never happened. I talk with friends and relatives. You remember that time that we were doing, and did this happen, this happened? That's not how I remember it. How do you remember it? Totally different story. Now, if that happened once, I would say that guy's got a poor memory. <laughs> but when it's happened several times, I'm beginning to think, I don't remember what really happened. The greatest component in the good old days is a poor memory. Oh, I wish we could go back to the good old days. Ah, we don't remember all that took place. Now, we need to make sure that we're not living by our senses. This is what I think. This is what I see. This is what I feel. This is what I want. No, no, no. Once you're a child of God, it's Lord, what would you have me to do? What is your will? And get me off of this rat race of living like every other person who knows not God. Let me begin to live like those who love you and know a loving father is planning my way and is right there for me in the midst of the storm. And my elder brother Jesus did the same thing and he came out on top. Learn from him as one who didn't give up. And don't give sway to your passions. It will ruin your race and destroy your life. So we must see a trial as a God-given opportunity from our loving Heavenly Father to grow us and develop us in holiness or to be like Christ or to develop us in the Christian life. It's all the same thing. And the greatest illustration of gain that comes from pain is in the cross. Let's pray.
Oh Lord, I pray make us today like Jesus and help us to learn the lesson that you are working in our heart a good plan. That the furrows upon our souls may be deep, but the husbandman has purposed glory. I pray, Father, some are going through unbelievable trials right now, and I don't mean to make light of them, and they're not easy, and we falter in the midst of them, but Lord, help them to see the glory that you are working on in them and through them. And Lord, if we could just live like Jesus, the author and the finisher of faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, then Lord, we would see the fruit and we would see the harvest and you would get the glory. Make it happen. In your name we pray, amen.